Charlie wasn't wrong. It was absolutely an abandoned farm. The roof had buckled in in the way that gave the impression that the buildings were as light as a feather. Like the cartoon barns that would just lift up and away during a windstorm that you watched as a kid. The ones where the cows would be chewing some grass and not realize they had been sucked into the storm until they passed the barn in the sky. You start to wonder if it would be easier to just start over back at the beach town, despite getting torn apart, because this was something else. Shrubs and small pine trees littered what had looked once like a pasture. There was this giant wooden, well, thing. It looked kind of like a super heavy-duty swing set frame, you thought, except instead of swings hanging from it, there was one massive chain. You figured it must have been from pulling out motors from tractors or bleeding pigs or something. You were afraid to think about it any further. The caravan parked beside the house, an oversized blue farmhouse. The farmer's porch wrapped around the front, but hung a bit too lazily from the structure. It was hard to imagine the last time somebody probably had been there. The town, when you'd pulled in, if you could even call it that, was a handful of shops, and the last sign in one of the windows advertised 88 cent gasoline. Pulling up to the farm, it didn't appear to be much. The dirt driveway running up to the property hugged marshland. The house stood merely 100 feet or so from it, yet the storm that had destroyed the entire town you had left hadn't even left an impression. Charlie smiled. It looks just like how I remembered it. He turned to you and saw the blank stare you wore as you tried to imagine starting over again here. Better than I remembered, to be honest, he said. He walked towards the front door and a floorboard on the deck crackled and began to sink as he reached for the walnut slab door. The door was unlocked and behind it was a time capsule. Somehow, the property had never been trashed and looked as though its owners had simply run to the store and planned to be back in five minutes. An unused teacup sat on the table, sugar and spoon ready, just waiting for the kettle to chirp. Charlie sauntered over, turned the faucet handle on, and watched bright red, oxidized water sputter out, clanking and shaking, until it ran clear. Waterworks, he said, and grabbed the kettle. You walked back outside. Once again, you were starting over. Once again, you were trying to figure out what that meant, and once again, you weren't even aware of where your next meal would come from. The driveway continued past the house, past the barn, and continued along the pastures behind the farm. didn't appear so at first, but it looked as though the property extended forever. You could see some other small buildings out in the distance. As you stared and tried to imagine, you, the desk jockey only a year ago, working the fields with the same people you shared a building with who couldn't get a tomato plant to grow. You couldn't help but laugh. What a shit show. 
the wind kicked up and the awful smell of the marsh, the smell of decomposing fish and whatever else the storm had kicked up filled your nose. Well, you thought, at least you probably wouldn't be eating any more seaweed. You headed back to the cars as folks finished pulling out what you had left. A couple of buckets of rice, some beans, and, of course, the last harvest of seaweed. Hey folks, thanks for coming back. This is Andy, and this is the one, the only, the Poor Pearls Almanac. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on Patreon if you'd like to help us cover the cost of hosting the podcast. If this is your first episode, welcome to what we do. But please go back and start at the beginning, or you're just going to feel like you started reading a book in the middle of the 10th chapter. If you're back, we're glad to know you're enjoying it. And we do ask, if you can afford to, to please help offset some of the costs of managing the show. While we do enjoy making the content, there's about 20 hours worth of work that goes into each episode, and the costs continue monthly, so any support we can get, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. Shout out to our Patreons, Lucas, Jerbear, MJ, and Sam Gates. You guys are the best, and we appreciate everything you do. Hopefully, you're enjoying that Patreon content. Additionally, if you're using iTunes, please give us a review so more folks can find the podcast and hopefully join us on our journey. Further, we're on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there. We started this podcast focused on the big picture, global warming and complex systems, down to the smaller features of this in order to build out a comprehensive framework for how these things not only tie together, but how they integrate into human systems and how we can support them. The last few episodes on ecology have focused on forest systems, fruit tree systems, their understory, and then we took a look at how these played into pasture systems and how animals integrated within the landscape. In this episode, we're going a little bit deeper, quite literally, and talking about integrating water management systems into our land design. So hopefully you didn't listen to the fruit tree episode and rush to plant some trees, but if you did, we got you. It's completely possible to integrate systems into an already existing orchard, regardless of the size. Water management systems give us the tools to reduce our need for water inputs and to help our soil withhold water for longer periods of time, making the root systems of our plants healthier and ultimately making our gardens and food forests more resilient. Good water management techniques from managing our topography can reduce our need to artificially water our plants by 90%. And if you're anything like me, you don't want to be filling up buckets all day or walking around with a hose, especially if you're using a rainwater catchment system which has a low flow rate. But before we can even talk about artificial manipulation of our topography, we need to examine how water operates naturally on our property, starting with the local source of water in the ground, our watersheds. Watersheds are the land area that feed water directly into a water body. Watersheds are significant not only because they provide water for streams and ponds, but because they are a significant factor in water cleaning. These watersheds are fed through the hydraulic cycle, which is what you remember from third grade as the water cycle. It rains, rain goes on the ground, 
it collects and ultimately evaporates from the ground or through the plants called evapotranspiration. Well, actually, there's some other stuff that goes on. Not all of the rain gets evaporated. Some, slightly less than a quarter, actually reaches the recesses of the soil and recharges the groundwater systems, that is, aquifers, and a bit actually makes it directly into the bodies of water in the form of runoff. Groundwater systems are crucial for long-term sustainability, not just for communities in the form of clean, consistent water, but also as a buffer for rivers, streams, and ponds during severe droughts. One of the things we have talked about repeatedly on this podcast is the benefit of healthy, complex systems and resiliency. And in no surprise, this plays out when it comes to water retention. While a field of grass may absorb up to a few inches of rain an hour, a healthy forest can absorb up to 20 inches of rain an hour. What this means is that during an extensive downpour, rainwater in a forest will remain in the soil, reducing that runoff and nutrient loss, and sending more water down into those aquifers for future availability. Runoff, on the other hand, will raise river and pond water heights, potentially damaging soils, crops, or homes. By retaining the water in a decentralized way, away from all being driven towards the base of the watershed, we are able to better utilize the resource. Further, using this type of knowledge, we can better plan communities in areas prone to the risks of water damage. The biggest impact on the quality of water in an aquifer or in a waterway is the type of bedrock that the water either goes through or sits upon. Common types of bedrock in the United States are sandstone and shale, which are acidic and lacking calcium and magnesium, which both impacts the soil and the water quality, creating a softer water with lower total dissolved solids. Conversely, limestone, another common bedrock in the United States, creates a harder water which will have higher amounts of calcium, magnesium, and higher total dissolved solids. We can further help provide support for waterway health by working with the waterways instead of trying to work against them. Buffer zones, called riparian buffer strips, are zones from 20 to 100 feet with trees which help reduce runoff and nutrient dumping in the water, while also helping reducing temperature extremes in the water by providing shade, which not only reduces evaporation, but protects fish species from temperature extremes. Nutrient dumping concerns primarily stem from nitrate runoff into the water. Excessive nitrogen in the water creates extensive algae blooms in the water, reducing the oxygen levels within the water and ultimately leading to massive fish die-off. Currently, in most small-scale irrigation systems, we tend to pump water directly out of streams or farm ponds, if not directly, from a well or public water source, like a municipal water tower. These water sources are generally sufficient for cases in which supplemental irrigation is used. In humid regions where rainfall and snowmelt supply most of the crop water needs, but limited amounts of additional water may be needed for good yields or high-quality crops. Such systems, generally managed by a single farm, have limited environmental impacts. A good source of groundwater is critical for the success of such systems, and low salt levels are especially critical to prevent the buildup of soil salinity. Most of the western U.S., that is, the Great Plains, much of it part of the former Dust Bowl area, is supported by the large Ogallala Aquifer, 
which I probably will never pronounce correctly. This aquifer is a relatively shallow and accessible water source. It's also 174,000 square miles to give you some context for how big this thing is. What's frightening about that is it's being used faster than it is recharging from rainfall, which is clearly an unsustainable practice. Deeper wells that require more energy, plus more expensive energy, to pump the water up will make this mining of water an increasingly questionable practice. And we're all about sustainability here, so that doesn't seem like a good idea. In comparison, healthy soils have more water supply capacity than soils that are compacted and depleted of organic matter. It is estimated that for every 1% loss in organic matter content in the surface soil, the soil can hold 16,500 gallons less of plant-available water per acre. Additionally, surface compaction creates lower root health and density, and hard subsoils limit rooting volume. These processes are captured by the concept of the optimum water range, where the combination of compaction and lower plant-available water retention capacity limits the soil water range for healthy plant growth. Such soils, therefore, have less efficient crop water use and require additional applications of irrigated water. In fact, it is believed that many farms in humid climates have started to use supplemental irrigation because their soils have become compacted and depleted of organic matter. So our poor farming practices on industrial farms are requiring even more inputs because of their practices. So this is only going to get worse. As we discussed before, poor soil management is often compensated by increased inputs, reducing tillage, adding organic amendments, preventing compaction, and using perennial crops in rotations can increase water storage. A long-term experiment showed that reducing tillage and using crop rotations increased plant availability water capacity in the surface horizon by up to 34%. But of course, that's probably not much of a surprise to you, because as we've built out this podcast, we've highlighted the vast array of benefits from building systems that reinforce the natural method of our forests and our fields, and forests are naturally pumping water out of aquifers to provide water for their trees. Or are they? So that sounded like kind of a goofy question, but it's a legitimate one, in fact. And we're going to cover it a bit. While I wanted to get through the content on the plant matter from fields to forest before getting to water, part of it is that water is such a slippery topic to cover for a whole host of reasons, and not just because I wanted to make that bad joke. For the purposes of this episode, we're going to focus on water management systems in terms of keeping water on the land as it arrives from the sky in the form of rain and snow. Since we've been talking about that quote-unquote big picture of regeneration and not our annual garden, it makes sense to start there. And if you are waiting for that annual garden content, we are going to get there, but one of the things that we haven't really talked about is the fact that when it comes to our food systems, even people that are considered quote-unquote homesteaders that grow a lot of their own food or claim to grow a lot of their own food, most people only grow about 30 to 40% of their food even if they are those big homesteaders. The big challenge is for a lot of people is that those staple crops, grains, rices, cereals, all of those are not commonly grown on people's homesteads, and for a lot of good reasons. They take up a lot of space, 
they're cheap to buy, and most people don't have the resources that go into actually threshing the grains and getting them prepared to be used. So one of the things we're going to be covering in the silvopasture episodes is how we can supplement and reduce our need for those things. We'll also cover in a future episode natural farming in which we can create rice systems that don't require those massive inputs. So by focusing on what we have focused on, that is grazing systems, tree systems, all of these perennial projects that provide a large amount of calories, we can actually produce more food that can actually be sustainable without relying on one year that might have a late frost that kills your tomato plants and now what are you going to do? All of those things start to go away when you rely on perennial systems. So that's why we focused on that before we've gotten to the annual garden. But we'll get there. And at that point, we'll also cover water management in the more traditional sense, meaning eco-friendly ways to water your garden, rain barrel systems, and so on. But this episode is quite a literal higher calling, and that is the health of this entire soil region. So additionally, at this point, you've probably noticed, I tend to be a bit leery of simple plug-and-play solutions. And this is one of the issues I've had with a lot of permaculturalists, or at least as permaculture exists in 2020. That said, one of my favorite modern farmers is Ben Falk, as I think he has a good pragmatic approach I don't feel gets sucked in too deep into the cultish aspects of permaculture, and his book Resilient Farm and Homestead is a great text, not simply for a knowledge-based approach to developing systems, but because of the individualized approach he takes in which his systems don't all come from one methodology. In his case, he takes a lot from permaculture without it being quite literally by the book. Anyways, I bring up Ben because he has invested a lot of time in rebuilding the aquifers on his site, storing untold amounts of rainwater from being diverted into rivers and ultimately the ocean, which has brought to life new springs and wetlands across his property, while also feeding the installed ponds and keeping the health of his soil in great shape. My goal with this episode isn't to simply help you keep your pasture or orchard or whatever you've got going on healthy, but to build that health deep in the soil, the aquifers, which will become more and more important as climate change pushes the extremes of rainfall and lack of rain, requiring us to increase our storage capacity in the short term and to refill our storage capacity in the long term. For us to do this, I'm focusing on three primary methods, swales and berms, key line water systems, and glade ponds. The last one isn't as much for that deep aquifer, but is an excellent tool for developing water storage on property that otherwise may really struggle to build accessible water sources for animals. It's also the one you've probably never heard of. Finding information on it is almost non-existent outside of old school farmers, so a lot of it is a bit more anecdotal than I'd like, but I do have some experience with it, so I think I can do the topic justice. Our goal ultimately when it comes to water management systems is to spread, slow, and sink the water as it arrives on our property. By doing these things, not only do we retain the water on our property, but we protect the soil health by reducing nutrient runoff, which also protects rivers, ponds, and other properties near us from nutrient dumps. Our second goal, which Ben Falk highlights in his book, is to 1 capture as much water as reasonably possible, two, store that water for dry periods, and three, distribute that water when necessary across the site. So to capture that water, 
we need to give it time to work its way into the soil. Since water follows the flow of gravity, our goal is to keep the flow of gravity away from any path of little resistance, right? If we know it's slowly percolating into the ground, the slower we keep it from following the path of least resistance with gravity away from our property, the more of it will slowly drip into the soil. Sounds simple, right? Well, this is where the concepts of swales come in, and we're going to cover how they work and don't work, and we'll be referring heavily to some of the lessons we got in the soil episodes. Swales and berms are the poster child product of most permaculturalists. Swales are, in their simplest form, a shallow channel with sloping sides, and berms are a raised side, usually where the soil from the swale was dumped, which increases the water capacity of the swale and provides increased surface area for water absorption. Google swale, and the second word Google recommends, is permaculture, in case you are curious if this is something commonly seen in any other part of agriculture. Pop on YouTube, and the first 20 swale videos are low-quality clips of newly minted permaculturalists showing you muddy, jagged inlets forced into what was recently a grassy backyard while the host explains what's going on, and there's usually rarely follow-up video for it. This doesn't mean it doesn't work, but it does mean it's a little more complicated than originally proposed, and there's a lot of folks trying to become YouTube famous for whatever they think can stick, and that's really dangerous for other first-timers. For what it's worth, I've been cutting in some swales and berms on my current property, and this is the third property that I've done it and had to live with the consequences of it. Unlike a lot of permaculture consultants who've never had to live with any of their own advice, so I think I have a unique perspective in that I've gotten to try some things out, see how it plays out over time, try something new on a different site, and so on. And I think after this episode, I'm going to bite the bullet and drop my episode on what is permaculture, the good, bad, and ugly. So hopefully that will outline why I like a lot of things about permaculture, but hate most of permaculture. Anyways, to get back to this episode, let's talk about the function of swales and berms, which parts are based in any evidence-backed science, and when they are appropriate tools for you, which is not always, but it is sometimes. I want to cover some of the basic ideas of swales before I jump into the nitty-gritty details, so if it seems pretty obvious to you at first, wait a few minutes and we'll get in as technically as I can. Water is guided by gravity and follows the most direct path towards gravity. The basic function of a swale is to guide that water along a path you want it to take, instead of down your sacrifice lot, through your newly planted grass slope, or whatever. The idea is that you want to spread the water across the surface for as long as possible and across the surface as much as possible to reduce runoff and increase saturation. As the water sits, it will make its way into the soil until it cannot go any further, at which point it will puddle, even underground, and continue along the fractures in the soil into the subsoil until it reaches a stream or an underground spring or a cavern or it floods up to the surface. By cutting swales into the property, we do a couple of things, some good and some bad. Let's start with the good. By creating lower points in your land, you're able to guide water towards certain sections of your property, as well as away from other sections of your property by using low-tech methods that can help keep your property healthy. 
Further, the soil that you dug up is typically dumped on one side of the swale, creating a hill called a berm, which not only increases the height of your swale's water absorption capacity to an extent, but also creates some interesting microclimates for specific species. The berms also create super rich soil because you've now possibly doubled the amount of topsoil in that berm. The berms also operate as a wick to release water from the ground as a high point where the wind can blow across and take that excess moisture as necessary. Further, below the soil, those areas where water sits and collects, which are often called plumes in permaculture, provide a feeding ground for small springs that may stay where was once the swale that only filled up during rainstorms. The negatives of this process of cutting in swales is that now the bottom of your swale has little to no topsoil remaining, creating a bit of dead zone for plants. Further, there can be unintended implications from manipulating the land that impact airflow around your property, as well as excess water issues. So, some things to keep in mind. And, of course, there's some assumptions we're making here about your land, and this applies to both swales and keyline design. Your land is almost guaranteed to not be perfectly level. It might be flat, but it's not level. It might seem kind of like it, but get a torrential downpour and you'll see the ebbs of the property, and that's what you're going to primarily be working with. Without understanding the high points and dips in your property, it'll be impossible to plan your swale out in a way that will create meaningful change, and this is where a lot of people get caught up. While we need to make sure there's enough pitch in our swales for water to flow throughout our property or into a pond, it's equally important to consider not having too much pitch, which increases the velocity of the water running across our property and pushing nutrients down to the end of our swale system, much like the nutrient buildup at a river delta. You'll also hear folks do swales quote-unquote on contour, meaning they're perfectly flat so the water cannot run off and soaks into the soil below instead of running further down the property. This, again, can be a good or bad thing. Lastly, and I think this is a part that is ignored by way too many people in permaculture circles, is that many areas do not need water retention. They already have enough, and in some cases, too much. I have heard horror stories of massive flooding issues because of swale berm implementation, where the general idea was that more water is always better, and that's just not always the case. It makes sense to consider your water table and your rainfall volume. Do you really need more water? or are you just looking to add something for the sake of saying you have it? It's important to be practical about this because the consequences can be far-reaching. When water enters the soil, there's three primary stages of water volume within it. We talked about this very quickly in one of the soil episodes, but I didn't go deep into it at all and just kind of mention these stages. The first stage is permanent wilting point, which is when water is practically devoid in the soil and the gaps between the soil particles are completely filled with air. The soil can tend to bind up, and if you've ever had a potted plant you forgot about, it becomes almost like a rock and even watering it is pointless, and the water practically trickles right out. The alternate extreme is complete saturation, which is when the air bubbles have been completely pushed out by water and leads to anaerobic conditions in the soil due to the lack of oxygen. The ideal condition is when soil is at field capacity. That is, there is a large amount of water in the soil with air pockets still available, allowing moisture to enter roots as it is needed, 
and is slowly wicked away through the plants and through the surface of the soil, as well as by working its way deeper and deeper into the soil. The goal is not only to help fill the soil's water capacity to reduce the need to water during dry spells, but to push perennial plants to build deeper root systems to tap into that water source, increasing their long-term viability by helping guide their root systems into new areas for nutrient extraction. These deep soil water systems that we're talking about here are the same feeder systems that go into rivers and are necessary to create natural ponds without using anaerobic conditions like in a glay system or clay in order to build them. More on that later. So we talked about how we want water to move along the property, but not too quickly, right? We can do this by using the contour lines on our property, which if you're not familiar with the term, is by identifying where you can find the contiguous linear heights where water will pull up instead of running downhill. And those are the places where we can naturally guide water from one contour, that is flat plain, to the next using targeted swale cuts to guide gravity feeding or to build those on-contour swales. Many times you can build up sections on the contour so instead of pooling and running further down, you can create long sections of swales in the same pooled space using berms. If your goal is to slow the rate of water flow to the point that you're building long sections of swales on one contour plane, you might want to consider why you're having so much water runoff. If you're looking to do so because you simply want to and enjoy seeing the swales and plan on using a lot of rock to create more of a stream effect, then go for it. In this case, think of building swales like the snake game everyone used to have on their old phones, where you want to make the snake as large as possible without running into another part of it. You can do that, but on each contour. Obviously, you don't want to actually make it as long as possible, but as long as you can while it is still useful for you to work around your landscape before traveling to the next contour. And at some point, the overflow of these swales will drop off somewhere, and this place is usually targeted as a candidate for seasonal ponds or pools. Depending on your system, they can range from a few feet to legitimate ponds. It all has to do with your rainfall volume, swale sizes, property sizes, soil type, and the slope of your property. If you're not looking for water sitting on your property, sheet flow spreaders are a great option. Much like the on-contour swales, sheet flow spreaders are rocks, three inches to a foot long, spread one row deep on contour at the bottom of a swale system where the water hits the rocks and is dispersed throughout the rocks. At the end of the rock system are slightly larger rocks stacked one row higher keeping the moisture from flowing through the sheet flow spreader quickly and dissipating into the remaining land. Beneath the rocks, you should seed native grasses that can take over and absorb the water without getting washed away because of the rocks. Within a few years, the rocks will no longer be visible. This absorbs the sediment that washes down flow and puts it to good use without it going to waste. Keeping the rocks only one rock high allows the plants to grow through the structure. If you're familiar with permaculture, you've probably heard about the greatness of gabions as check dams to reduce flow from massive swales and other water flow systems. But the challenge with this is that gabions tend to blow out. While sheet flow spreaders may not be as effective with larger systems, they're a better long-term solution to reducing flow without the risks associated with gabions.
Sorry, I know this is a little off subject, but I did want to touch on that because that is the one example usually people know of when it comes to using rocks to absorb water. And like everything I enjoy covering on here, I also like to go into the technical aspects of how these things do or don't work. My largest concerns come from the fact that anyone can say anything on the internet, including myself, and nothing is fact-checked, and everyone is looking to get famous, but usually they want to get famous for something before they're actually good enough at that particular thing to get famous about. So I like to go through some of the technical details that kind of prove or highlight the foundations of what I'm trying to portray. Fortunately for us, both the Oregon State University Extension School, as well as some public access in Colorado, has covered some of this content. So I'm going to refer to some of that real quick and uh, talk about the, the science and math behind what we're trying to do here. I won't be able to cover the keyline systems in this episode, but I will give you some basic information to explain when swales make more sense over keylines, since you might not be familiar with keyline systems, as they are less common for a few reasons, which again, I'll cover in the next episode. Our first goal when it comes to developing swale systems is to identify how much water we're dealing with. How much is really going to impact our soil, and how big does our swale need to be to handle it? There's generally two methods that are used to calculate runoff, and they're the rational method and the hydrograph procedure method. The latter requires specific details about your location, so I'm not going to get into it, and it's a little bit more complicated. Um, so I'm going to focus primarily on that rational method. It's going to sound a little dense for about 30 seconds, but then when we unpack it, I promise it'll make a lot of sense. And um, it's not 100% accurate, but it's an accurate enough for us, especially considering the fact that most permaculturists don't actually use really any math when they come to trying to figure out what size swell they need. It's usually a rule of thumb type thing. You can watch some of Jeff Lawton's videos on YouTube to see that, and he's the uh, permaculture god right now. So anyways, let's talk about this. The rational method formula to figure out your peak runoff rate is fairly simple, but sounds complicated at first. It starts with the runoff coefficient, that is, the runoff volume to rainfall volume. That is, when water hits the ground, how much of it goes into the soil versus how much then runs off the soil. That's your runoff coefficient. Now you multiply that times the average intensity of rainfall for a duration. That is, it can be inches per hour, it can be the largest storm that you're concerned about, times the tributary area, which is how many acres you're looking to feed into your swale. So, for example, if you're worried about getting a worst-case scenario four inches of rain within a short period of time for a storm across a quarter of an acre with a runoff coefficient of... 0.5, which is half of the water from the rain is going to go into the soil and half is going to go into runoff, it's 4, that is 4 inches, times 0.25, which is your quarter acre, times that runoff coefficient of 0.5, which is, oddly enough, also the number 0.5. That's your peak rate of runoff in cubic feet per second. So two of those figures are really easy to figure out. Your tributary area, which is how big of a space are you trying to run water from, which can be a 10 by 10 square foot space or whatever it might be. And the other one is how much rain you're expecting. You can kind of gauge what the biggest rainstorm you've had in the last 5 or 10 years that you're worried about. 
and you can use that as the number that you want to focus on to make sure that you don't have overflow. The challenge is trying to figure out how much water you're actually dealing with for a runoff coefficient. It sounds scary and complicated, but it really isn't, and there's a lot of basic tables for runoff coefficients online, and I'll give you some examples. A flat grassy yard has a runoff coefficient of between 0.12 and 0.17. That means only 12 to 17% of the water that hits the soil in the grassy yard is going to run off into the swale on average. If you have a driveway near your swale, then that area that feeds into the swale is a different coefficient. The driveway piece alone has a coefficient of between 0.7 and 0.95, meaning 70 to 95% of water that hits the driveway will run off into the swale. That makes sense, right? I promise it wouldn't be too complicated. If you are looking for a specific surface type, Google it. There's probably someone online that's posted a chart with it. Using this and knowing the topography of our soil and knowing what you're preparing for in terms of how much rain you'll get at once can give you a really good framework of how big your soil needs to be. And I'm sure you didn't expect to get a math lesson today, and we can make this process infinitely more complicated by talking about things like overland flow time and the time of concentration and so on, but this is really sufficient, and I think for Again, 99% of people, this is going to keep you from creating too small of swales, which is the biggest concern for most people. So let's go back to my example and then see how we can apply it. Our example gave us half a cubic foot per second of peak runoff rate. That means you'll have half a cubic foot of rain falling across your land that will not penetrate into the soil, but run off and ultimately into the swale during your rainstorm. How this water plays on your property is impacted by the function of your swale. If it's on contour and not meant to flow downhill, you want to make sure it can hold all of the water. So let's go back to our example. We have a half cubic foot per second, that's 30 feet square feet per minute, that's 2400 square feet of water for an hour during a 4 inch an hour rainstorm. Or if we're worried about 4 inches, then we're looking at 2400 square feet of water because that's measured in an hour. On our quarter acre, let's say it's a square lot that's a lot that's 100 feet long by 109 feet wide. Let's use the land to tell us how large it should be. Since we would be working with a 100 foot long lot, let's have two swales that come together that are each 100 feet long. So they might be running in parallel or they're running closer together so they connect in the shape of a V, meaning 200 feet total of length. That means each foot length of that swale needs to be able to absorb 12 cubic feet of rainwater because we have to absorb 2,400 cubic feet. 2,400 cubic feet divided by the 200 foot long swale leaves you with 12 cubic feet per linear foot of swale length. So you can come up with a few different ways to come up with that 12 cubic feet. You can have six foot wide swales, two feet deep. You could have three foot wide swales, four feet deep. I know this is a hard concept to try to understand through this format, but if you try to find an answer on how big your swale should be, there's a lot of hand-wringing and no real answers, just a lot of bullshit explanations about using the tree sizes and stuff like that which really isn't helpful when you have no experience. Unfortunately, some permaculturalists are starting to admit that a lot of swale guidance has been based on bullshit rule of thumbs that aren't based in any real math which is what they've seen on other properties, which may or may not work. So that's the densest thing in this episode. So if that made sense, awesome. 
that's like the super basic version that anyone with an actual science or more intense math background than my accounting background, they're probably just laughing at me for this, but I think at least it's a point to start working from. That's more than I can say for any PDC I've ever taken, and it's more than I can say for most of the stuff that's free online or in any books that you might buy. Obviously, the bigger the project, the more you might want to consider hiring a specialist because small mistakes in large systems cause large problems. If you're working on a couple acre property and you're swelling a small part of it, then you'll probably be fine with this. If you've got a 100 acre property, do a little more math or find someone else that can. So now that you've got a good sense of what swales are and what they're meant to do and the different ways they're used to function on the landscape and the different goals they have on impacting the landscape, some of the negative consequences you may face with them and how to calculate roughly the size of the swale you need if that's the direction you want to go. This is all great functional knowledge of how swales exist in an abstract way, but when you're saying, okay, I've got all this, now what? Then, well, where do you start? The first thing is, and everyone hates to hear it, observation. Watching the way rainfall flows across your property, across seasons, is imperative before you start doing anything. Pretty much anything. You can do some things. But why is this important? Because not only will it give you an idea of areas which may have thin topsoil, compact soils, and which areas may drop further than you thought, but you can see how the change of season impacts these flows, which they will. You'll want to start at the top of your property, topographically speaking, and work your way down. This will help you see where the water starts and you can start identifying the contours on the property as well as the clusters of areas where the land changes more dramatically or may be faced with stronger runoff issues. We can also use the free power of gravity to guide water towards places we want water, whether that might be a seasonal pond you'd like to be year-round, an area that gets more sunlight and dries out more quickly, or whatever it might be. For many of us, the top of our property is going to be the top of our roof. And you might think, well, my property isn't at the top point of the local topography. Maybe you're on a slope and it continues up into your neighbor's backyard. That's fine. You can't control what your neighbors might do, so we need to start from our highest point, or where the water enters from another property. We've got to work with what we've got, Right? From there, we want to start small and simple. Not only are big and complex intimidating and something we fear doing because of the risk of screwing up, but small and simple usually don't come with costs. Chances are you can get a shovel for next to nothing from somewhere, or you already have one, or you have a friend with one, and it's simply labor of love to put in your first swale. And I do want to say, like a lot of things you hear or read on the internet, it's one thing to understand them as a concept. It's another to see it be applied in action. It's cool. Even now, despite having put in a couple dozen swales over the years, it's still cool to see it actually work and fill up. And a little part of you wonders if you're actually going to see it ever fill up or if it's just something that you think will happen and never does. So there's some rules about putting in swales. While we know the water is supposed to drain slowly into the soil and then wick out through the berm, because of the extra topsoil available on the berm, this is an ideal place for planting trees, and swales are primarily recommended for trees. If you're working around existing trees, your goal is to stay outside of the drip edge of the tree, that is, the furthest leaves on the tree from the center of it, 
because we can estimate that this is about how far the core roots extend on the tree, and we don't want to damage those. Roots extend further, which is how they can access the water source, but these roots are more malleable and replaceable for the tree. We can also make small tests of uncontoured swales near our home, because the high impermeable surfaces mean extensive runoff from roofs, walkways, patios, and driveways, up to 10 times the amount of runoff from your grass, if we think back to our runoff calculations. You'll see the term rain gardens used a lot around people's homes, but these are just on-contour swales. When we put in our swales, even small ones, we want to have some kind of overflow in case our math is wrong up above. We also don't want that overflow to go to waste because water is valuable, right? When we don't have a plan overflow, there will eventually be failure. With a small system, it might not be a big deal, but the larger the system, like I said, the more risk that comes with it. When we are talking about these overflow spots, we also need to realize these are generally the weakest points in our swales. This is where water flows most quickly and often moves downhill quickly and can cause the most damage, not to the overflow spot in the swale that's overflowing, but to the swale that's receiving the excess water from the overflow. Further, we need to consider the other side of the berm. On contour swales, are designed to saturate the berms and to slowly percolate the water into the soil below. We have to think about if we have any buildings or other surfaces or other objects that we need to be concerned about, walls, things like that, which may be damaged by this process. So now I want to circle it back to my own property. At my last house, we had a giant rock wall next to my neighbor's house, butted against my backyard. I say rock wall, but it was literally just a giant slab of granite. It was 12 feet tall and was effectively one giant rock, and water would flow from every crevice like a kayak hit by a shotgun slug. If it wasn't so frustrating, it would have been funny. My solution was to build an on-contour swale with the berm right above the wall and planted ivy along the wall to help fill in those new holes with its roots and ultimately reduce the amount of pressure from the water flowing out from the holes. The swale in front of the rock was two feet deep and two feet wide with a berm that was two feet tall, three feet wide. I planted asparagus at the tops of the berms and I filled the swale itself with mint and lemon balm, which can tolerate more moisture than most plants. Plus, I didn't really need a lot of it, so if it survived, it was all the better for me, but not really a major concern. I just didn't want to look at dirt. Below the berm, I planted currants, which did extremely well, and every time I drive by the property now, and I see the new owners leaving the berries to rot, a little part of me dies. It worked pretty well, to be honest. The asparagus didn't thrive, but it did well enough, and otherwise, it was a tough spot to work with. Given that I was working on a 6,000 square foot lot with such a large, unique feature, I was happy. On my current property, I have applied some swales in various spots. The back of my lot drops at a very deep slope, something like a 150% drop of 50 feet, and I have integrated small swales around some clones I took from native willow trees nearby. I have no intent to stop the runoff, and overflow isn't a problem because it dumps into a vacant lot between me and the highway, but I wanted to make sure the plantings had enough moisture to root, and they've been successful so far. Further, I've been implementing some small swales around a row of fruit trees mixed with locusts, fruiting bushes, and some pollarded willows. I'll talk about why I've developed this system in a few episodes when we've covered a couple of other subjects, 
but the swills have been successful so far in reducing the need to water one of the furthest parts of my property from a water source, saving me a lot of physical work. Despite having sandy, awful soil, the swales manage to hold water significantly longer and the grasses even in the swales are greener and thicker than the grasses right on the edges of the swales. Like my own advice, I'm starting small, partly because it's hard to work on my site because of the dense forest previously in place, and partly because I'm watching to see how the site evolves with all of the changes I'm making. And this brings me to my last point on the subject. When is it appropriate to do swales? While we haven't touched on keyline systems from water management on site, I do want to talk about when swales are a better choice. Generally speaking, less steep slopes, under 3% or so, are better for keylines, as well as grades higher than 15%. Further, swales make sense when you're working on a site that has a lot of unique features and are not designed for industrial equipment to harvest or large monocultures, which really isn't our jam anyway. Additionally, earlier succession in the forest or grasslands is primarily a better condition for your site. Grasslands, prairies, and early tree stages, and you don't really want to touch older forests for a few reasons. First, the roots of older forests are likely covering the entire landscape, and if the trees have survived this long, they likely don't need any more water conservation. Of course, there are exceptions, like where I am right now, where you're trying to thin your forest, and you're trying to keep some of the trees. This is when it gets to be nuanced and you have to use your best judgment. In the next episode, we'll be covering key lines and how they operate in a different way to help your property absorb rainfall to keep your soil resilient to rain shortages. We'll then do a quick touch on glade ponds as a tool we can use as well if we have time, which hopefully we will. Then again, I thought I was going to cover key lines and swales in one episode, and here we are. So, as always, thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the content, and until next time, this is Andy, and this is the Poor Proles Almanac.